me there. Well, good evening, everybody. And um, thanks so much, Christine, for leading us. What lovely hymns and songs we've enjoyed. And uh, it's very good of you here at uh, Sunbury Road to welcome us to your evening service. Thank you very much. Um, As Christine mentioned, this is one of a little series. Uh, We started last night, and then uh, I at least continued this morning at uh, the Church on the Way, and then here we are this evening, and then there's Monday and Tuesday evening. Um, If if you've managed to do three or four or even five of those sessions, I admire your perseverance. Um, (laughs) But they're all around the theme of first things first, what really matters in the Christian life. And this evening, as you'll see on the screen, we're looking at first things first in the Christian life. It's all to do with our life in Jesus Christ. And um, that lovely song we've just sung is really appropriate to what we'll be thinking about. So um, before we do that, just a couple of commercials, if I may. Um, There's a fantastic bookshop here right behind you. You've seen it as you came in, which 10 of those has provided. And uh, over on the far table, um, over by the bar, is that what you call it? Uh, (laughs) No, uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) the reception area. Um, There are some books uh, from Keswick Ministries. Um, We now produce quite a lot of books. On the left-hand side, there are books uh, which are, they're all uh, reduced in price. They're just five pounds each. Some are the Keswick Foundation series, um, some new books, uh, some republication of Bible readings. This one's just been done, Faith in the Face of Danger, which is published actually for, for Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but they're allowing us to sell it here in Britain as well. Um, and I wanted to mention this. this is, if you were at Keswick last year, uh, the theme was Captivated, Hearing God's Word, and this is a collection of the sermons and messages that were given, the seminars and so on, that were given last summer. It's just um, been available. Some of you may already receive it if you're regulars at Keswick, but um, there, there are copies there. And then on the right-hand side, all the books are just £2.50, uh, a variety of ones, but I especially wanted to mention this little series called Food for the Journey. Um, these are small 30-day uh, devotional booklets. They're a handy size. They go inside a handbag in your pocket. Um, lo- I mentioned last night, a lot of young people quite like them. And when they're traveling or they're commuting in the morning on the bus, they can just uh, read a couple of pages and a thought for prayer uh, and for reflection. And they're all um, repurposed from Keswick in the past. Actually, let me just read inside. It said... Um, Can you guess how many sermons have been preached from the Keswick platform? Um, Almost 6,500 over the years. And um, so some of them have been little series on a Bible book. This is 1 Thessalonians, which Alec Mattia did some years ago. He's now in heaven, but um, he still speaks. And uh, you can read uh, 30 little daily devotionals on 1 Thessalonians. There are on other books. There's one on uh, Ruth, one on James, one on Hebrews, one on Habakkuk, one on John 14 to 18. Um, they're proving very popular. And at £2.50, that's less than a cup cup of uh, cappuccino isn't it so um, do do have a look at those and uh, as I said last night it would be lovely if you're able to join us at Keswick in the summer um, if you haven't been the, the weather is always like this in Keswick and uh, what but <laughs> and um, you'll you'll enjoy the opportunity uh, it's running for three weeks it's free of charge you just find where you want to stay and um, we'd love to see you if you can come um, 
the previous year we did Keswick stands for three things hearing God's word which is the one we did last year becoming like God's son which we did the previous year and the book uh, by Peter Lewis is, is on that subject and then this year we're uh, looking at serving God's mission and uh, we would love to have you be part of that as we think about how we can be equipped to serve the Lord as we should um, well, thank you very much again for inviting me and for allowing us into your evening congregation. And we're going to look at this lovely passage, Colossians 2. If you have a Bible with you, please do turn to it. I'm going to read to you uh, from uh, the NIV, Colossians 2, uh, from verse 6 onwards. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord, as Anglicans would say, and we all reply, thanks be to God. It's God's word. Uh, well, I'm, we mentioned yesterday, uh, I, I live in the city of Oxford, and um, we have a small population, much smaller than Bradford, I think. It's 140, 150,000 people, but we receive 3 million tourists every year. And um, the city has a kind of love-hate relationship with these tourists. On the one hand, they certainly benefit the local economy. There's no question about it. But on the other hand... Uh, The roads are really busy, the streets are crowded, um, the parks have Coke cans and McDonald wrappers everywhere, Um, and sometimes people don't like the tourist mentality. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, sort of coming in in their air-conditioned buses, and they do do Oxford in in an hour, and then they're on to the next city. It's all very easy, And, and it's actually, I introduce it because it's in contrast to the emphasis which we find in the scriptures to the disciple or the pilgrim. Uh, the pilgrim is ready for the long haul, for the hard work. He is going to keep going. He's going to continue. His, the disciple is going to keep learning. It's patient growth. It's a commitment to continual learning and growing in the faith. It's true, though, isn't it, that for many people, the Christian life can be reduced just to maybe a visit to the church once a month. Um, or even if we're regular uh, church members, um, it's often the case that we're distracted by so many other things in our lives that we have no real expectation of change or of growth in our Christian lives. 
Now, one of the core themes of this letter uh, in Colossians is the importance of continuing in Jesus Christ and growing in Jesus Christ so that our life becomes increasingly Christ-like. Here are a few of the verses with this uh, call to continue that are up on the screen. Um, In chapter 1, he says, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel... And then at the end of chapter one, where he talks about his his big purpose, he, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or fully mature in Christ. That's Paul's purpose, to bring us all to full maturity in Jesus. And then, of course, we've just read uh, in chapter two and verse six, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So you'll see the emphasis. He wants believers in Colossae and in the churches to whom he was writing, having received Jesus, to now keep on growing in their life in him. That's why we've selected it in this first things first little series. There can be nothing more important than our relationship with Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Now, Paul was writing, as you probably know, because there were some uh, some, there was some false teaching that was beginning to impact uh, those uh, Colossians. Uh, These false teachers were introducing a so-called spiritual freedom. Um, And and they were particularly emphasizing the importance of adding to their faith, but not adding Christ, adding other things. Christ is not enough, they were saying. And Paul was very, very anxious that they shouldn't be caught up in that teaching. He called it a kind of slavery. So in verse 8, you see, he says, don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone take you captive by this false teaching. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. That's the core message. So his writing is to encourage them to recognize that Jesus is everything. In fact, he says in the earlier verses, I didn't read them. We're talking about his purpose in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's no need to go elsewhere. Paul is saying to them, there's no need to listen to other voices. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. He's very insistent. Jesus is enough. That's the foundation for our Christian lives. It's the foundation for our security. It's the foundation for our future, our destiny. So just two sections this evening. I'm breaking it down into two simple sections, each with a little triplet. And here's the first one. Three calls to maturity, to grow up in Christ and uh, you'll see there verses six and seven and um, many years ago I read a book by Jim Packer um, and it was about uh, uh, why the Bible is important and he gave the illustration of the redwood trees in California I don't know if anyone has been to that part of the world but if you have yes if if you have that opportunity to visit these huge trees they're incredibly impressive I don't know how many meters they go up beautiful beautiful trees but when you go there you'll notice that they've all been fenced off and the reason is that these huge trees have a very very shallow root system so as all of the uh, tourists and the visitors walk round and round these fantastic trees it's going to make them increasingly vulnerable because they really only have shallow roots it doesn't take too much to topple a redwood and um 
Jim Packer uses that to say that that is one of the challenges with regard to the Christian church uh, all around the world. Uh, in other words, there is inescapable signs of Christian growth at uh, Church on the Way this morning. We were talking about the amazing growth of the church, particularly in the majority world in Africa, Asia, Latin America. Um, there are more, more believers in churches in mainland China uh, today than in, in all of, of the whole of Britain, the whole of Western Europe put together. Um, more Anglicans just in the, uh, in the Nigerian Anglican churches today than in all of the Anglican churches in Britain, Western Europe, Australia and North America combined. Fantastic growth uh, in, in many, many parts of the world. And yet very often it's a shallow root system. And actually it's increasing the case in our country, too, that although we are thankful to God for a growing church, little by little, we're the only part of the world, actually, where the church is not growing, the only continent where it's not growing. We need to keep praying for Europe. But in this country, broadly, we are steady and uh, we have great resources. But the danger, generation as generation goes on, is that we have very, very superficial roots. That was Packer's point. Um, we need to make sure that we truly are growing. And in a crisp statement in verses 6 and 7, Paul underlines this. First of all, he talks about godly living. He says, As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him. Verse 6. Now, the connection is, is quite simple. Uh, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, well, of course, they had received the gospel in, Coloss in Colossae. We have received the message Jesus' death and resurrection, we've received and accepted that gospel message. But more than that, we've ex exercised faith in Jesus himself. We have received the person of Jesus Christ as Lord. That was the beginning of their new life in Christ, the beginning of their discipleship. And Paul underlines, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. When I receive Jesus Christ as Lord, I acknowledge his rule over my life. I recognize that every part of my life must come under his control. And that leads to the second part of the phrase, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him. It's impossible for a disciple of Jesus to say, I've received Christ Jesus as Lord, and then fail to live a life that's dependent on him and that's obedient to him. That gives a mockery to the idea of receiving Christ as Lord. You've begun your Christian life, Paul says, by committing yourself to Jesus. Now make good that profession by shaping your life, living under his lordship. You live in him. Well, it's a challenge for every believer, isn't it? This is a call to make sure that if we confess Jesus, we are living as Jesus lived. We are living his life. Uh, I love the little phrase in 1 John, whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2 verse 6. If you say you belong to him, demonstrate that by the way you live. And of course, that's fundamental in our Christian lives. And I think it's fundamental uh, to our credibility as Christians, in our witness in the world in which we live. People want to see that if you name Jesus, you live Jesus' life. I read an interesting uh, article in the newspaper not long ago it was about a German businessman. It was, he was in Frankfurt. And um, he'd been given a 10-month suspended sentence because he'd assaulted a traffic policeman. Um, he, was, he was given a small thing. It was a ticket on his illegally parked car. And the businessman uh, 
argued with the traffic cop and said, please remove it, and the traffic cop refused. So he, I'll quote from the, the, uh, the, the newspaper article, here's something for your mouth, shouted Heinrich as he punched the policeman in the face after the p- policeman refused to remove the ticket from his illegally parked vehicle. Heinrich is an anger management consultant. <laughs> yeah, so... We all know that. We all know how easy it is. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, am I a different person here Sunday evening in a, in a church service and a different person at home or a different person at work? Am I one person in my office and another person when I'm with Christians? Am I one person in a tax office or in a traffic jam and another person standing at a lectern like I am? In other words, the first aspect of belonging to Jesus is this call to live in him, godly living. The second one is also in these same verses. I've called it spiritual growth. As you were rooted, he says, this is verse, a paraphrase of verse 7, as you were rooted, be built up. He's using two, two different images. Do you notice that? In fact, someone's paraphrased it like this. You must put down healthy roots in him, being built up brick by brick. Now, what has Paul got to say here? Well, first of all, he says, as you were rooted. So when we became Christians, we were united with Jesus. We were rooted in him. And the tense of the verb that Paul's using is once and for all. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are connected to him. You're rooted in him. You cannot be uprooted. This has happened. You're absolutely secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, as, we've, as Christine was leading us in those lovely songs. Uh, we're, we're absolutely secure. We are rooted. And the image also implies, you know, there's our sustenance. That's, that's how we're growing, because we're rooted in Christ. But, Paul says, there's no room for complacency, you notice. He says, now be built up, brick by brick. Now we've got to grow up into Christ. And Christians, local churches, only survive by this commitment to be rooted and to be built up in Jesus Christ, to go on growing uh, spiritually. Um, I've got three daughters, um, by God's grace, and uh, my Japanese friends told me that means bankruptcy, which is true. But um, one of them, when she was very young, uh, was at school, and uh, a friend of her has offered her some stick insects. You know these stick bugs, Americans call them. And in fact, she was offered 60 of them. And uh, so she thought very carefully about it. And then uh, she came back home and she said, Dad, I, I was offered these as pets, but I decided just to take 10. And so she had 10 stick insects in our house for some while. And she decided that having 60, there would be loads of casualties. And she would much rather care properly for 10 than to face the trauma of multiple bereavements with all of these stick insects (laughs) passing away. Now, um, it's a silly illustration, but really that was Paul's concern for the churches. So he was planting churches, the apostles were planting churches, but they were very concerned that they should not only be planted, they should grow as congregations. And so they did. They made these tours, didn't they? These missionary trips. Uh, many times in Acts, you notice they returned again, encouraging and building up the disciples. They were keen to make sure that there should not just be growth in numbers of churches, but growth in maturity, spiritual growth. 
Um, in Ephesians 4, do you remember the fantastic verses? He said that uh, uh, as God's people, we're we are praying to equip the people of God for works of service. This is the teachers and the preachers and so on. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So there's the first call. Having received Christ, live in him. That's godly living. The second, having been rooted, we're to be built up. That's the encouragement to spiritual growth. And that leads to the third little uh, triplet, and that is Christian understanding. As you were taught, be established in the truth. Again, I'm paraphrasing verses six and seven. So this third aspect of this call to, to grow is to deepen our understanding. Be established in the truth. Don't just hold on to the faith that you are taught, first of all, the basics. You are to grow in your understanding and your experience of the power of the truth of God's word. Um, do you remember the account of the early church? I've quoted uh, you know, how the churches were planted and how they grew in Acts. Already early on in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, do you remember Luke records, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was basic for their growth that they were committed to grow in their Christian understanding. Uh, you see that the same pattern all the way through Luke's account. Uh, Antioch, for example, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Or you take Ephesus, Paul was there for two or three years. Um, if you read that story, it says that uh, he, he taught daily in a lecture hall, a lecture hall of Tyrannus, probably for something like five hours a day. And um, I read some while ago something that Sinclair Ferguson said is that Paul, when he was in Ephesus for, for, the, for that da daily teaching uh, and his work in the synagogues and there for two or three years, he said that would be the equivalent to 50 years of three 40 minute sermons a week. All of that teaching compressed into his time in Ephesus, 50 years of three 40-minute sermons a week. I don't know how many sermons a week you can survive, but um, 50 years worth, all compressed into those two or three years. In other words, Paul expected, there's no wonder he expected a degree of maturity on the part of uh, the Christian disciples in Ephesus and elsewhere because of that huge investment of teaching and preaching and one-to-one -one encouragement, listening to God's word, uh, this ministry of the word in all kinds of ways. And that's the, uh, the, the point for the Paul is making to the Colossians as well. We are to be constant learners of the truth of God's word. We're to be growing up in our understanding, experiencing the power of God's truth, demonstrating its authenticity in our lives. Well, there are three great calls to maturity, aren't they? I think it's first things first in our Christian lives for godly living, spiritual growth and Christian understanding. Well, then the second uh, and the final little triplet I wanted to mention is really encouraging. Three blessings in Christ. Uh, these are verses 8 to 15. And again, you see, what he's doing is underlining for us that our real identity, our real security comes from knowing Jesus. 
from living his life, from experiencing the blessings which come through our fellowship with him. And these are very familiar to us, but it's good to, to remind them as first things first in our lives. Here's the first one. He talks about it in verses 9 and 10. Fullness in Christ. And he reminds them and us that the gospel centers on this sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Uh, the logic is clear, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Do you see how he makes that connection? Christ is the fullness of God. And now, because you're connected to him, you have been brought to fullness. Actually, he's returning to something he mentioned in chapter 1, which if you know this letter, he, under, he takes a lot of time in chapter 1 to underline the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, chapter 1, verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And that's what he repeats here in verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So Jesus, he created everything, everything Paul says there was by him and for him. He was before all things. He's the head. He takes first place. It's a huge, huge chapter, Colossians chapter 1. And we've already seen chapter 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. And verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Everything you want to know about God is there in Jesus Christ, who's been made known to us. So the point, you see, is obvious. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. So that leads then to verse 10. He goes a step further. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. And it's possible that word fullness was a kind of catch word amongst the false teachers who were circulating in the churches. Uh, they downplayed the experience of, of Christians and they suggested all kinds of supplements, all kinds of additions, as I said a moment ago, all kinds of extra things they needed. If they really were going to be spiritual, maybe occult activity, maybe Jewish laws, lots of discussion about what they were suggesting. Basically, it was Jesus plus other things. And you see what Paul is saying? Absolutely no. If Jesus is the fullness of God, all the treasures of God are found in him, and now you have your fullness in him, you don't need other things. You don't need other certainties in your life. You don't need other uh, spiritualities. No, Jesus is all you need. You have fullness in Christ. Um, here are the verses. Let me just pop them up. Yeah, he's, he mentions this idea several times. Chapter 1, you'll see he says there... Um, sorry, let's, where's the verse? Uh, yep, chapter 1, verse 25. You've received God's word in all its fullness. And in chapter 2, verse 2, they have the full riches of complete understanding. And here in verse 10, they've been brought to fullness in Christ. It's fantastic how he underlines that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. Now, I said a moment ago that, of course, we're still growing. Well, I think the image is, is rather like little baby. We have a, a couple living with us at the moment in our home, and, um, and the wife has just given birth. Uh, yesterday, I missed it, and uh, her name is Sophia, 
Um, she's, the mother is Ukrainian, the father is Norwegian. They're studying in Oxford and they're living with us. And uh, Sophia, when she's born, I'm looking forward to meeting her, but we have a granddaughter called Sophie. And most children, if, if they're healthy, of course, are complete when they're born. They don't subsequently grow extra legs and arms, but if they're healthy normally, uh, by God's grace, they, they are complete, aren't they? It's amazing when you look at their little fingernails. Uh, you're just a couple of days old and everything is in place. Um, now, of course, uh, our Sophie and all of us uh, had to grow. We expect that kind of growth, but there's a completeness about the baby. And Paul is saying the same for Christians. We are complete in Jesus. There's more growth. There's more to come. But if someone says you need Jesus plus something else, absolutely not. He's underlining. But I always think that Paul's testimony in Philippians 3 is the best way of understanding it. Do you remember when he, he spoke about his past life? And all his efforts, all his religious efforts, which now, he said, compared to knowing Christ, was complete rubbish. What a waste, he says in Philippians. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Um, the point was, and I think it is for us, um, when we come to know Jesus, something has happened to us which nothing else could provide there's our restored relationship with god there's the forgiveness of our sins there's knowing his love as we've been singing earlier there's a spiritual satisfaction there's a peace in our conscience there's a hope for the future there's a freedom from guilt all of those things come to us because we're united to jesus christ is there anything else we need actually well we might need clothing, we might need a modest income, we might need somewhere to live. But actually, in the scheme of things, what we really need has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I always remember meeting a, a, a brother in Kosovo, in uh, former Yugoslavia. And he's a fantastic evangelist and he's traveling, helping the churches. And um, <clears throat> through a translator, he told me his story. He's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he was a, a remarkable man. He was an athlete. Actually, he was the Yugoslav weightlifting champion. So I agreed with everything he said when we, when we spoke together. And um, he'd become quite wealthy. Uh, he had several shops and houses and a family. And then, then there was the uh, uh, war uh, that uh, took place in former Yugoslavia. And um, uh, his family were carried off to Albania. He, he lost his family. He was beaten up. So he went to Albania trying to find his family. Um, eventually he did find them through the help of some Christians in Albania. Then he came back to Kosovo. And he looked for his houses, and they'd been destroyed. He looked for his shops, they'd all been burnt down. But he met the Christians again, and to cut the long story short, uh, he came to faith in Christ. And um, in, in the discussion I had with him through the translator, he described all of those things that had happened, and he concluded by saying, I had nothing, but now I have found everything. The Lord is my life. And it was a lovely, very simple testimony but it was very telling that everything else swept away. Reputation, life, it's true for many people around the world. But if the Lord is my life, I have everything I need. Uh, during the Rwandan genocide, do you remember, there were a lot of very remarkable stories of Christians. And one of our colleagues in student ministry uh, barely hang on, uh, held on, actually, as a survivor. And he was quoted uh, around the world in an email which he sent to the IFS office. I didn't realize 
that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. And many people around the world, of course, uh, many believers go through tough times, like the Indonesians today uh, are facing that, you've probably heard. Um, It reminds them that you can strip away physical things, material things, even health, even life itself. We still have Jesus. We have an eternity with him. That is true Christian testimony. Christ, Paul says, who is our life, as he says in chapter 3. So there's the first thing, fullness in Christ. Second blessing, well, I've mentioned this several times, so just two minutes on this, union with Christ. Verses 11 and 12. In him you are also circumcised by a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Those verses are simply underlining you are united to Jesus Christ. You were circumcised, you were buried, you were raised. We share in everything that Christ has done because we're united to him. I always think this is the best definition of a Christian. How would you define a Christian? A Christian is a person united to Jesus Christ. How would you define a church? A church is a community where Jesus Christ is at the centre. It's to do with our union with Christ. And those verses, although they're a little bit um, complex, they, they underline all the time, this is what God has done. It's the repetition of what's called the passive voice. You have been brought to fullness, verse 10. You were circumcised, verse 12. You were buried and you were raised, verse 13. God made you alive with Christ. So God has done all of this. In Jesus Christ, and we're united to Him. So, our growth, our identity, our security, everything in our lives is to do with that union with Christ. We share in all the benefits that Jesus brought about through His death and resurrection. So, when you begin to see that, you realize well, this idea that the Christian faith is, you know, doing certain things certain religious duties or believing you know, uh, certain things. Well, belief and practice matter. But at the heart of it is belonging to Christ in this way, union with Christ. That's really what matters, Paul says. And here's the final thing. Thank you very much for your patience as we go through these verses. Freedom in Christ, verses 13 to 15. It's another very rich section. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. A couple of simple ideas that are here. The first obvious one is liberation from debt. Um, I think most of us know the experience Uh, You've had a wonderful time with your Visa or your MasterCard down in the shopping center, your American Express, fantastic, bought lots of things. And then suddenly, a couple of weeks later, through the door or in your email comes the statement, all the charges which are against you after that liberal spending spree. And that may be one of the ideas that, well, of course, not credit cards in Paul's day, but the concept of a written code which is against you. Uh, Most people see it as a kind of certificate of indebtedness. It's a a signed confession of indebtedness which stands against us. There it is. It's a witness against us. 
Um, and that is exactly the case in terms of our lives, that all that we have done wrong in rebellion against God is there, Paul is saying in this image, as, as a certificate of indebtedness. This is what you owe. And can you pay it? Of course you can't. And so he says, Christ's death on the cross completely and decisively has dealt with that indebtedness, our failure to live by God's demands. It's been nailed to the cross. He's cancelled the debt. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So it's a very graphic description in these verses of the way in which God liberates us. He frees us from paying our debts. He frees us from the guilt of all of that wrongdoing. He frees us from the judgment of God because of what Christ has done. And the picture even implies that the charge sheet, this list of all those things which are against us, has also been destroyed. They can never, ever be presented again. We are completely free. Freedom in Christ. Now that's important because I guess you might meet Christians like I do, and there might even be some here this afternoon who often feel very burdened by the reminders of of past failure, of past sin. And I was with someone uh, not long ago who said to me he's very burdened by the failure of his marriage and uh, the, the reactions in the family towards him and towards his wife and, and the nasty things that were said, you know, and uh, he's, he said, it's, it's, a, it's a burden to me. I said, when did this happen? He said, 19 years ago. And of course, we understand why people carry these burdens, don't we? Uh, sometimes the, the failures in our lives or the difficulties we've encountered live with us and they become, sometimes, uh, they can have a paralyzing effect on us. So it's really important that we understand what Paul is saying in these verses. Of course, we can't always undo the consequences, but we can discover that the indebtedness, the uh, judgment that we deserved, the sinfulness has been lifted. Our understanding of God's forgiveness through Christ has this kind of effect. And then the second thing that comes in these verses is even stronger. Well, not even stronger, but he's going even further Paul proclaims that the cross is a victory over evil. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, it's um, sadly true, certainly in the Western world, that talk about principalities and powers and Satan and evil spirits and that kind of thing sometimes surprises Christians, even amuses them. You know, as far as they're concerned, all of that is a kind of superstitious anachronism. It's mythological baggage from the past. You know, nobody believes in, in Satan or evil spirits today. But actually, you discover around the world, it's not just Christians who believe it. Non-Christians also are very aware of some of these powers of evil. What Paul is describing here as... Uh, 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 powers and authorities. Um, in fact, John summed up the purpose of Jesus' mission when he said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That was Jesus' mission. And verse 15, as it's translated in the NIV, which I'm using, pictures these evil spirit powers, you could call them terrorists from hell, being stripped of their weapons. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he destroyed the, the power of those evil authorities. The cross was the place for the unmasking, the disarming of every evil power which stands against God. 
So Paul gives the picture of triumphing, verse 15. That's the idea of the Roman general, remember, leading the, uh, uh, the captives in, uh, in victory after a successful campaign. It was a very public way of saying, this is the victory. The enemy is defeated. As I conclude, here's something which uh, David Jackman said, which I like very much. He was writing about 1 John, actually, uh, 1 John 3. The coming of Christ, culminating in his cross, spells God's total triumph over all hostile forces which have tied us in knots and bound us in chains of sin which we cannot loose. Christ not only sets the captive free, he destroys the captor. Freedom in Christ. So our indebtedness is dealt with and evil has been overcome. Now, one final thing. I wouldn't be surprised if going on in our heads after all these things that we've been thinking about, some of us are saying, it doesn't feel like this. In other words, there's a tension, isn't there, in our experience. It's a tension in our Christian theology as well. Satan has been overthrown, as we've just been reading, but he's not yet been finally eliminated. We're living in the overlap of two worlds, aren't we? And we still live in a world where the impact of evil, the impact of the fall, is very evident. And that can impact us in all kinds of ways. So Christ's victory does not mean freedom now from suffering. Doesn't mean freedom from our struggle with sin. Christ's victory does not mean we're always going to be riding high and never bothered by evil, never tempted. No, it's not that, is it? In fact, the best way of understanding it, I think, is a simple illustration, which uh, I received when I, was, when, I was, when I was quite young, as a young Christian. Um, let's imagine that you go and see a football match, or you watch it on TV. So it's Bradford City against Manchester City. And guess what? Bradford win 4-1 against Manchester City. Fantastic. And uh, you've kept a, a recording, you know, a video recording of the game. So the following Saturday, you say, I'm going to watch that match again. So you put, it, you put the uh, uh, DVD or your, or your memory stick or whatever, and you watch the game, Bradford against uh, Man City. And the game starts, and you see Manchester City, very good team. You see them passing, you think, oh, goodness, they're going to win. I mean, they're a fantastic team. They're going to score. Oh, look at that. Gonna... And hang on a minute. This is a recording. The game's already been played. I know the result. Bradford City won. And it's exactly the same manoeuvre for us as Christians. Uh, it would be easy for us in the midst of our world when we see evil pushing forward and we see uh, the advance of, of uh, uh, things which seem to be against God's purposes to imagine that it's a lost cause. But what Paul is saying in these verses is, no, look back to the point when the victory truly was won. Look back to what Jesus has done. And in our struggle, when we're facing sin, evil, even death itself, we can be absolutely sure that Jesus has already won the victory. So we're to keep alert to Satan and his devices, the New Testament tells us, but we're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the risen Jesus, who's defeated death and who now is in charge of this world. Satan and the principalities and powers, death itself, have no other expectation, according to these verses, than final ruin. That's ultimately 
where things are heading. So we return to where we began. Um, what Paul is saying to us in these verses is, don't be a tourist, be a, a committed disciple. Be someone who is committed to grow in Christ. And as a congregation, if I speak to several churches that are represented here, we want to be committed to keep growing to maturity. And we're longing for people to see that Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is all we need. That's what these verses are saying. So our union with him and our fellowship with him is what matters more than anything else. That's why it's in our first things first list. Knowing him impacts every part of our lives, or so it should. And I finish with one final illustration. I wonder if any of you uh, remember the comedian Spike Milligan. Yeah? Slightly wacky, wasn't he? And he had some, some unusual jokes. Well, one day he was traveling um, on a train, and someone recognized him. And uh, they said, oh, Mr. Milligan. And uh, the, the person said to him, um, and where are you from? So Spike Milligan said, I'm from London. So he said, oh, which part? And he said, all of me. <laughs> it's, it's a really good answer. Um, every part of me came from London. And I think that's what Paul is trying to say here, that in the light of what Christ has done for us, he wants all of us, every part of us. He doesn't want an occasional church service or an occasional prayer. He wants every part of me. I want to be completely united to him because the gospel changes every part of life it's top to bottom it's inside out it's absolutely everything as paul has been saying here you don't need anything else it's jesus and you don't need techniques you don't need rules you don't need well you might there are some disciplines which are valuable but his point is if you have jesus christ you have everything you need it's founded on that great truth so Here's the verse again as we finish. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. There's the, in my view, the key priority to living the Christian life. Thank you very much for listening on this hot afternoon. Let's pray together as we finish. Father, it's fantastic to have just a handful of verses here that Paul wrote uh, 2,000 years ago which summarize uh, all that matters in Christian living. We thank you. He gets right to the heart of the issue. You do through your word now by your Holy Spirit speaking to us. We ask that each of us who has put our faith in Jesus Christ will be committed to live that life to grow spiritually, to grow in understanding. We ask that each of our congregations will continue to grow up into Christ as each part plays its, its, uh, as each part plays its work. We ask too, Lord, that as we live lives that are committed to Jesus, other people around us will be drawn to him and will come to see that Jesus is the answer, the saviour of the world. We pray that you will bless our congregations, bless our own families, our own Christian lives. Help us, Lord, to bring glory to the name of Jesus in all we do, in whose name we pray. Amen.